Hello, Cachimbonas. I am very excited to be unlocking this episode that I shared with the patrons earlier in the summer. I wanted to do a deeper dive into the life of Farabundo Martí, who was the organizer, limpo organizer, who, after whom the radical guerrilla turned political party FMLN named themselves after in the 1980s civil war. And so, of course, for this episode, I brought back fellow Salvi Latina slash my partner in thought for most of the Salvadoran history themed episodes, Yesenia Medrano, to discuss Farabundo Martí's biography, Farabundo Martí, Rebelión en el Patio Trasero. We discussed the devolution of the FMLN from a guerrilla resistance group to a corrupt political party, celebrate the revitalization of government-obscured Salvadoran history, which this podcast is in part dedicated to uncovering, and note the larger failings of the Central American left in incorporating indigenous issues into their platforms and goals. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast where I, Yvette Borja, audio archive the fierce resistance happening in southern Arizona borderlands and break down the relevant law and politics for leftists. As the daughter of Salvadoran immigrants, I also uplift Central American voices and histories on this podcast, which is what today's podcast will be dedicated to. If you want to support the podcast, you can become a Patreon for 5 or $10 a month. You get first access to episodes and access to all the past catalog of lit reviews, which are Patreon-exclusive episodes where I focus on various texts of literature with fierce women of color over a glass of wine or two. And it's an exciting time. I think that there's something for everybody in the lit review. Most recently, actually reviewed Slash and Burn by Claudia Hernandez with Yesenia. And that was even more insight into the life of FMLN combatants and the reintegration period post-Civil War in the 1990s. So basically, you've got to become a patron (laughs) and tap into all these awesome conversations. If you'd like to support the podcast but cannot do so monetarily, another great way to support the podcast is to leave a rating or review uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, which I know for most of you is Apple Podcasts. It's if I receive ratings and reviews consistently, then it just makes it more likely that I'll be featured on the podcast platforms and it helps new listeners see the podcast. Of course, another incredibly easy way to support the podcast is to share your favorite episodes with your friends. Finally, you can follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Today, I am so excited to have 
Yesenia Medrano, fellow Salvi Latina, back onto the podcast to disc- for a special episode that's focused again on the history of El Salvador, but this time looking at one historical figure in particular, we read Farabundo Martí Rebelión en el Patio Trasero, which was written by Hernán Hernán Brienza, who's a leftist Argentinian journalist. And the book had a foreword by Comandante Nidia Diaz, who was a co-founder of the Frente Farabundo Martí Para la Liberación Nacional, which was a the guerrilla group that fought the corrupt Salvadorian government and during the civil war and eventually evolved into a political party. And they named themselves after Farabundo Martí, who was this critical labor leader during the 1932 indigenous labor uprising slash indigenous genocide by the state. And so I wanted to give that context just because her foreword is this anti-imperialist history of the U.S. It's pretty detailed discussing the U.S. facade of invading Texas to fight tyranny when it was actually just about engaging in, you know, these colonizer frontier dreams of manifest destiny and how their triumph there emboldened them to try and colonize Central America. And it, the introduction mentioned the Treaty of Mayarino Bidlac that gave the U.S. significant transit rights through the Panama Canal Zone. And now we know that this is kind of the large reason, one of the biggest reasons why the U.S., does have such an obsession with Central America is because it wants to control the Panama Canal and the transit routes through it. And I I bring all this up because I Googled Media Diaz, you know, to see what she's up to nowadays. <laughs> and she is still involved with the MLN, FMLN, which we were talking about before we started recording, has devolved and become a corrupt institution, kind of similar to what the other political party institutions of Asamblador are plagued with. And she tweeted on the 4th of July, Felicito al pueblo norteamericano que este 4 de julio conmemora el uh, 245 <laughs> aniversario de su independencia de Inglaterra. Destacado papel jugó George Washington como comandante en el jefe del ejército continental revolucionario en la guerra de independencia contra los ingleses. And I was so shocked to read this. And I just wanted to ask, like, how do we explain what Diaz's politics have become, you know, from the founder of this very radical group to now a USA apologist. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, yeah, I really enjoyed reading this book. Um, I 
um, don't have Twitter, so I'm not able to see the tweet, but, Mm. um, yeah, I think it's, um, it's interesting because this book was not written that long ago. I don't think. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like, and like the eighties, I mean, it's all this happened within her lifetime. So, yeah yeah it's just um it it makes me think about like specifically her talking about um Washington in this book as well and just like Mm. the fact that the U.S. took advantage of countries in Latin America particularly Central America being poor and having to rely on the U.S. which in turn um exploited their resources so yeah I don't know it's weird um it feels like yeah it's just very ironic to be celebrating the country that has been so deeply involved in destabilizing right your country <laughs> um and all surrounding countries <laughs> right and like continues to be involved in this yeah yeah, and I we're going to get into this more a bit later, but Farouk Martí really was a transnational, you know, international solidarity political person. One of the things that he is <clears throat> that he's most noted for is that he joined Sandino in Nicaragua and uh, was led a troop of five Salvadoran men who fought for the original Sandino that then, you know, inspired the Sandinistas. And they were also organizing during the 80s as well. And so it's truly a total repudiation of the politics of the man that that party is named after. And I think he would, he's likely very upset from the grave if he is watching what's happening because uh, he's someone who fought so hard for Central American unity and and sovereignty and the right to self-determination, particular in relationship to the U.S. So to have somebody that now espouses themselves, you know, presents themselves as a political representative of the FMLN, of the Farabundo Martí, Para la Frente Nacional de Liberación. Oh, I totally butchered that, but you all know what I mean. <laughs> you know, it's it's very insulting to his memory and his legacy. So another reason why I wanted to do this lit review was just that I, well, so when I was trying to decide the topics for season four, I put out an Instagram question and asked, like, what do you all want to learn about? And someone, I actually think it was Ale Pablos in particular, who said that she wanted to learn about undocumented political prisoners, but around the world. And so I kind of in doing research for that question, I came to realize that Farah Martí had been incarcerated 
then began thinking about what it means to be an undocumented political prisoner. And I, I think that he fits the bill because throughout his life, he was deported various times and he was kept in exile from El Salvador because of his political beliefs and his political organizing. And when he was incarcerated, I, I think every person incarcerated is a political prisoner because this the state of of having jails and prisons is itself a very much a political project um but but like there is this kind of other more specific definition of somebody who's like explicitly incarcerated because of their political beliefs and i think it's just like undoubted it's undoubtedly true that Fernando Martí falls into that category and I really appreciated reading this book because I came to know a lot more about his life in general, including that he was the founder of the Communist Party of El Salvador. I mean, these were things that were covered in the book that we read to Rise in Darkness. But as you said, like that book was so dense that Farouna Martí was, you know, he's mentioned a lot like compared to other people, but it's like a 400 page book and he's mentioned six times. And so this was just kind of a much more personal way of understanding how he figured into the movement. And so I wanted to ask if you could break down for the Cachimbonas how, quote, El Comunismo came to be linked to the state sanctioned genocide of Western El Salvador's indigenous communities. Yeah. Also, one thing I may have found this wrong. I should probably just Google it. But my understanding was he was he never actually made it to the detention center in San Pedro. He was re he was rerouted, right? Right. Or he like refused okay. to get off the boat. I think he was taken back to El Salvador, exiled to Nicaragua. Okay. Okay, so so the San Pedro thing was like, it was contemplated, but he was never actually incarcerated there. Yeah, so I think he was shipped there, um, but then he did not get off the boat, so he wasn't actually detained in California. I think that was the intention. I think it's a very badass move because <laughs> I don't, like, I just really want to know how exactly right? that went down because a lot of people refuse that action and they are still incarcerated and placed mm -hmm. in detention centers so really curious about how exactly he finagled yeah that one. it seems like he was able to <laughs> it was a different time also For sure. like i think now our arizona law enforcement is primed to think oh as soon as there's even suspicion of somebody being undocumented we need to contact ice and border patrol but it could be that you know, oh, well, I know for a fact that in, during the time that he was was supposedly supposed to be shipped to San Pedro, immigration detention and incarceration was much less. It, it was not expected, and it wasn't. It wasn't part of like the public discourse and public imagination of what the country is, and or requires. Right. So I think it, yeah, I I think that could also contribute to why that happened as well. Yeah. This I know this is like not <laughs> directly. The question that you're asking but this whole um I just hadn't read about people being I mean I guess the term is also exile but people being deported from their own country was like so mm -hmm. weird to me 
Um, and mm. I didn't know that like, this is the first book that I read about, um, of these lives. So, um, it was just interesting to read about like him being deported from El Salvador. It was just like hard to wrap my mind around that. Um, but then he was really able to escape a lot of these, um, like deportations. It seemed like, uh, like, or incarcerations, like the whole San Pedro thing. And then like when he was rerouted mm-hmm. to Nicaragua, he was able to somehow hide in another ship and like make it back to El Salvador. <laughs> so yeah, definitely interesting. Yeah, I think he's definitely, I mean, he's an exemplar of how, you know, governments attempt to create these borders and attempt to restrict people's movement. And then at the end of the day, when we're talking about life or death things and his commitment to El Salvador, I think what like really was a lifelong commitment. And so he he was just not mm-hmm. going to abide by the imposed exile that the Salvadoran government was trying to place on him. And I really appreciate that. And I think that's like what we see in a lot of contemporary mm-hmm. Central American migrants as well. That's strength. And I I was familiar with the idea of mm-hmm. countries, especially Central American countries, yeah. exiling people who are leftist and le- political because I, I read Gioconda Belli's memoir, El País Bajo Mi Piel, which I really recommend. We talked about it on the Lit Review months ago. See, so if y'all had been Lit Review patrons, you would have been talking about this months ago. <laughs> and I clearly need to catch up on some other Lit Reviews. <laughs> wait, are you a patron? Oh my God, wait, I love you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you don't remember the Giacomo Belli one? Well, that one, it was that was a while ago. Yeah, but she yeah. like she lived a lot of her life in exile because she was she was involved in the Sandinista movement and was like doing like undercover work, and so she eventually had to flee for her life and and the the places where Marti went I think are pretty common places for like um exiled leftist Central Americans to go like to go to Costa Rica and then to Mexico I think those are pretty those were kind of like the those were the places that Giocondo Belli also went to so I think there's kind of like there is this tradition of if you're in exile, like surround leftists from surrounding countries will welcome you into their organizing. And it's, it's like a very beautiful tradition. Yeah. I would be, I, I definitely want to learn more about it. I'm um, just like, yeah. What kind of like contract that was between these countries too. Um, and like how you decide where somebody would go. But. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, I think I think the history is important because I think it signals how deportation has always been political, and perhaps it seems more candid in these contexts where there's unstable governments that people are fighting for control over, and. If you are spreading ideas that are dangerous, you're just deported. But I mean, there's 
you know, ICE does the same thing now. I know Claudia Redas, for example, mm -hmm. was arrested after doing high, uh, you know, a high profile action to get her mom out of detention. And the, you know, the, these, it's just, it's critical to see these threads in history and to recognize what the deportation system is actually about. The, the reason I asked about the, the communist party of El Salvador and like how that came to be linked to the state-sanctioned genocide is just to point out that it's an example of this intentional obfuscation on the part of government to distort memories. And it's, I mean, it's very effective because even generations after the fact People say, oh, you know, Latinos tricked our family members and promised them lands and riches. And that kind of framing is, ignores the agency of indigenous leaders during that time, like Feliciano Ama, who, and then like making the narrative about how now actually everybody is just so scared of even the mention of communism. And it's important to constantly restate these histories because of the government's really, you know, in a lot of ways, successful efforts to read, to really retell that narrative. Um, when the reason that indigenous people died in 1932 was because of state violence. One thing I thought about with this question is it kind of like, so this book didn't really talk about, um, Farabundo Marti, Marti's um, like identity really uh, other than class and so I, mm. I still don't mm -hmm, know very mm -hmm. much about it um, but right. I have also heard that he is like has Afro-Latino roots I don't know like yeah people are very mixed in El Salvador too so mm -hmm. it's kind of all over the place but because the way that this book talked about him I saw Farabuna Marti as like yeah. somebody who was almost like because of his social background a socioeconomic background he like had this privilege to basically choose to um join this movement and um I just kind of saw him like hopping around to like the way that it talked, the book talked about him is like, um, after he was deported to Guatemala, like he went to Mexico and then he spent time with Sandino, as you're saying in Nicaragua and then like decided he needed to return to El Salvador. So it was like, he was like kind of moving around learning and then bringing that back to El Salvador, which is great. Um, but it was also like, it just seemed like a very privileged position to have. And, and then to bring that back, and like help start the communist party which is like challenging um like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. challenging the oligarchs and um the government and and like demanding land re redistribution and then kind of like having that associated with like the laborers the worker the farm workers like those ideals associated with the land with the farm workers so it's basically like 
that communist identity is placed on indigenous folks who happen to be a lot of the the farm workers and like peasants. I guess what I'm trying to say is kind of like <laughs> just bringing up the fact that he had like a privilege, he had privilege in being able to choose to join this movement and do the work that he was doing while people who were indigenous were just kind of blamed for being part of the communist party and being somebody that's threatening the power and um, land and wealth that the government and people in power held. And so like that yeah. identity is just kind of like the communist identity is just automatically yeah. placed on indigenous folks. Yeah, it's the his race is an interesting question. I know that sad girl Danny, Danny Parada has talked about his you know, potential Afro-Latinx roots because people called him Negro Marti. And there's pictures in the book that I appreciated looking at um, I just, it's just, they're very poor quality. So it really doesn't, it didn't really, looking at the pictures didn't really resolve for me anything about, any questions about his racial background. And I think the question is difficult because, especially because um, I think because of certain things like the fact that the black population in Salvador is smaller and there have been these like historically like these laws that have actually like, at, at certain points excluded black people from becoming a part of the, the citizen polity there I think colorism in Salvador works where where if you're just darker skinned you could be called you could be called negro or negra and that doesn't wouldn't necessarily mean that you have afro descendiente roots but so i i think i think it's a i think it's a complicated question and i'm no clear in understanding it than i was before but i hear you about his class privilege i think i like one of the questions I wanted to ask was if you thought that he was a rate of a class trader because he he did grow up basically like his dad was he wasn't the landowner but he was like the he was like the manager right of the workers and you know for that reason got paid more and he Farouk Martí lived kind of like a like a middle class existence. And he gave that up and he, he like repudiated his parents. Like his, his dad asked him once he got arrested at the student action, his dad was like, stop, whatever it is that you're doing. And Marti went on anyway. And I think that was his sacrifice um, was like the repudiation of his parental relationship with his dad. Um, and, but, and, and, I, and, I, and that said, like, I think it's important to recognize that he was not indigenous and that Feliciano Ama, who was an indigenous labor leader who 
was doing largely the same things that Marti was doing in term in that time period was so was executed but his head was decapitated and it was presented to everybody to like really scare especially indigenous people right and so Parabundo Martí died by like, uh, what is it called when multiple people shoot at you? A firing squad. Firing squad. That's how he died, um, which is a pretty horrific way to die, all things considered. Uh, but he did not have his head decapitated and, sh- and kind of hung up as a symbol of, of indigenous oppression. So it's always important to recognize the various privileges that people bring with them. One of the critiques of the PCS, the Salvadoran Communist Party, was that it failed to create like a strong vision, like a military and political vision, and People say that that was because they overly relied on Marti. That was something that the authors in Tries in Darkness claimed. Did you get that sense from this book? Yeah, I mean, I don't think this book really talked about if if he did have, um, or if the PCS did have more of a like military strategy. His book definitely didn't talk about it. Um, and I feel like from the start, right this book talks about Farabundo Marti being like very um, just like enjoying reading and learning and like being really uh, good at giving mm-hmm. speeches and like speaking up while he was in college and like organizing. And I think that it talked about a little bit about how um, when he was with Sandino. It was like a five-person like troop of Salvadorans who were like the, they were the Salvadoran squad basically who were amongst, with Sandino. Right. And then Sandino promoted him to colonel because of his intelligence. And But it, I don't know, there weren't, there wasn't a, really a focus on his tactics. And I think that that's like also one of the things that this book talked about was the reason why Farabundo Marti and Sandino split um, sounds like there was various reasons, but one of them maybe being that like Sandino mm-hmm. had more of like a tangible plan and goal, whereas Farabundo Marti was very like um, I think this was mentioned earlier, but like trans transnational focused on transnational solidarity and like just seemed more theoretical. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because it's it's actually like kind of interesting how he's been remembered versus the his skills and what he like really contributed to the movement because I I think from the way that this book depicts him it, he comes off like very intellectual because you know it's like talks about him being a kid and like a middle class kid where his dad had like a you know a library of books that he would spend reading in his leisure time and that that was how he encountered Marx and um you know other leftist political theorists and 
he went to college as well. And that was his first initial arrest was as a college student. And even when he was exiled to Guatemala, he's, he continued his studies there. And so, and like, so really his like time with Sandino was the only time where he was actually like, had taken up arms and, and that, and then the 1932 uprising. And I mean, I guess, I, I, I guess he was both. And I, I, you know, I think he, he was a, he was young when he died and he died before his time, definitely. So it could be that he spent a lot of his youth educating himself, but would have become a more dedicated military strategic person had he spent more time on this earth. But it's it's interesting because like the in for the Garia group, the FMLN, it was Farabundo Martí who was revitalized and honored in the naming of their group and people were explicitly calling for taking up arms like they did in 1932. And I was just again reminded of the centrality of these uprisings and despite the government repression of these memories, they live on. And actually like it was an explicit inspiration for the civil war resistance in the 80s and i wanted to ask how how you reacted to that how i reacted to the fmln the creation of the fmln and yeah and how they were inspired by the 1932 uprisings and and like call his call to take up arms i mean i think yeah i feel like if anything this I felt more not confused but just kind of not really understanding how they chose Farabundo Martí to be the name of the political group Um, because I think that like there's um, some like articles in the book that talk about like why why Farabuna yeah. and like <laughs> you know what he means to the the FMLN and to the people of El Salvador. And like I definitely agree that he seemed like very inspirational. Um and you know definitely played a huge role in like organizing again like creating the Communist Party. But I think kind of like what you're saying there were just so many people involved and I almost thought it was like I almost thought that he seemed I don't know if it was just because he was because of his privileges and his socioeconomic background and like his like knowledge and having gone to school he seemed more and like being well-spoken like um that he was more digestible but then at the same time like I appreciated that I think it's Lorena Peña in her I think it's like an article that she wrote just like acknowledges that there's so many women also who played a role in this movement 
Mm -hmm. remain unrecognized or erased by history so I think that's that was my reaction yeah it's funny because I remember when we first read Tries in Darkness you were like I was surprised by how little they mentioned Fadwin Lamarty given like how central he was and now we're like we've done a total 180 and we're just like wait why did they name yeah. the political group after him and there were so many other badass women badass like indigenous right. leaders who who they could have picked from and I think the authors of Tries in Darkness definitely suggested that them picking Fadwin Marti at the very least like in comparison to for example Feliciano Ama was a, you know a sign of them again not, I mean, actually, like replicating maybe Fatabunda's mistakes himself of not seeing the importance of indigenous people in this fight, and that's you know, it's it's like an unfortunate weakness that I think the naming of FMLN represents, and, and you know, I think there's a lot, a lot. I think the issue goes a lot deeper than just the name, obviously, and I think. I think there's a lot of reasons why Fadabunda Marti would be remembered over other individuals, because as you say, he was very privileged because even in his exile, he was making moves. He he was invited to come to the U.S. to attend the, the Anti-Imperialist League and represent the Salvador. And when he went to Guatemala, he was studying social sciences and jurisprudence. He, he had a lot of privilege and he had a lot of visibility as a result of that. And... I think it's important to recognize those reasons why he's remembered by history. But for example, Prudencia Ayala, who's also operating in the same time period, didn't have a political movement named after her, even though she was also challenging political structures in a totally unprecedented way for the time period as well. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciated especially was that but learning about him was that he refused to be released because when he was in Guantanamo and got arrested for the solidarity action, he refused to be released because one of his fellow comrades from the action wasn't going to be released. And that was actually what finally caused the government to expel him for that first time. And I appreciate that he didn't abide by the laws of the presidents who were exiling, deporting and expelling him because of his political commitments. And again, I think that's why maybe even if Nobody has framed Farabudo Marti as a political prisoner. I think that we should definitely think of him as that. Yeah, I didn't I didn't really think about that. Because I think he elucidates how these categories of citizenship or undocumented are not as clear cut as their contemporary discourse would have you believe. Because what does it mean that he was, I don't know, like was he a citizen still? Or like like was he formally deported or was this just like a summary expulsion compared to compared to Title 42. Um, and it just made me remember something Ada Pablo said, which is that undocumented people are actually like very much documented because they're heavily surveilled. And I think Farahudo Marti's story set in a different time period, where perhaps we're not thinking about things in these ways of 
undocumented, of deportation, but that is what was happening. That is that is how we should name it. What whether or not there was a time limit on these exiles, because he definitely came back and but not with permission. Never with permission. Right. Yeah. Not with permission, but government knew he was back. There was one time where he was arrested and but like had to be released because there was no evidence for like the charges that were being brought against him. So, and then I think even like, oh, this was, I think this, was this right before he was killed where the police chief came came to meet with him? The police chief met with him and then what happened? I guess that's more of just demonstrating how he was used or like they, El Salvador tried to use him as a political tool. Um, And like you were saying, his refusal to um, submit to the government. Um, yeah, there was, uh, there was one part where police chief came to talk to him. I think this was when Martinez was president and he was in prison and there was a lot of protests happening because he was incarcerated. Yeah. I think it was community pressure that ultimately got him released for sure. Emphasizing Mm -hmm. that there was a lack of evidence but it was ultimately community support watching what the government was doing that led to his release mm-hmm. and his his, tri- his transnational solidarity and his anti-imperialist lens i feel like are critical for what he was really trying to do because the for the us it is all of latin america that is it's playground or backyard (laughs) and it's yes exactly it's backyard and so the him eating sandino and you know him being in conversation with people in mexico other central american countries and the u and like you know leftists in the u.s i think is like the only way that these fights can be fought because because of the, the like deep interrelationships between these governments that have been going on really since the Central American governments were were founded or, or made independent from Spain. Yeah, I think it also it just speaks to how how important it is to fight colonialism from multiple angles. I guess I did really appreciate like the comparison of like Sandino's yeah like very I guess okay I think about this like Farabundo Marti was definitely a big picture thinker and I know I'm a terrible big picture thinker I don't think so at all (laughs) I feel like I have like one like concrete goal to Um, apologize yeah same (laughs) yeah (laughs) abolish ice and then I don't really know what's going to happen afterwards, but (laughs) that's what I can focus on right now. So I, I think it just, yeah, I just appreciate how like important it is to have different styles of, of thinking about like the same goal, but you know, different, yeah, I don't know, different thought processes. (laughs) our individuality is very important yeah yeah i well 
I, I think it's like the individuality of every person is important and in thinking about how we can work as a collective because none of this is done by any one individual and I think the Fata Willa Marti was tapping into a very long history of Central American unity you know and they're apart from like the literal fact of of the like Central American countries once having been literally one governmental entity also was like a really rich history of these countries helping each other out William Walker this Tennessee man from Nashville who literally was like I'm gonna go to Nicaragua and become president and just make it a satellite government of the U.S. Oh my gosh that was hilarious but not really but but then it's like terrible. he actually succeeded for two years but it was only two years but it's scary to think about what a what right. one gringo can do with foolishness and determination <laughs> yeah and it, it but it, that after like he was ousted and that was it was he was ousted through like uh, an army of like all the Central American countries, they were all just like, oh, well, this is bullshit. We're all going to join you in getting rid of this individual. And then he was eventually executed. And the, yeah, the threat was neutralized, as they say in the military. <laughs> and I, I just appreciated mm-hmm. Fabio Lamarty's lifestyle of like how and his and how that impacted his analysis. You know how he was in Guatemala, and how there he realized that the problems of Central American countries were largely similar, with like oh authoritarian governments where the United Fruit Company is actually in charge, and I really appreciated how, seeing how these realizations then also fit into the work that he did later, like with the Socorro Rojo Internacional, that was a mutual aid organization for people who were incarcerated for their communist politics. And it's, it, I, I mutual aid, I think it's so clear to me, I think was one of his central tenets and, and values, you know, I'm not sure how he would put it, but in our like contemporary organizing terms, I think he was extremely about mutual aid. Yeah. I think that, um, that's, uh, one of the questions you had posed was what he identified as a, and I'm going to butcher this anarcho-syndicalist. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Anarcho-syndicalist. Anarcho-syndicalist. This is kind of similar to what um, you were explaining or just saying. Um, thinking about like this book talking about his um, organizing, like when he was first um, deported to Guatemala and it's talked about like this was the first time he was like, now a worker or like laborer um starting in like a beer factory and then ended up working as a farm worker with indigenous communities i think at that point his parents had cut him off like his his dad was like 
don't do that. Don't get arrested. And he was like, well, I'm obviously going to go get arrested. So, And he had like ran away from his sister who was. <laughs> oh, right. Cause his, oh, right. Because that was another thing. It's like his parents were like, OK, whatever. You can be in Guatemala, but like your sister's going to watch over you. And then he was like, right. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had to make his own way. But I think like I think this was with when he was organizing with the indigenous farm workers in Guatemala like the book talked about I didn't I don't yeah I feel like it's problematic definitely to say he was like I think the book said he was like the voice of the farm workers right which is like uh (laughs) they have their own voice they definitely have a voice (laughs) sharing organizing knowledge of speaking up for your own or just like organizing to advocate for yourselves for themselves yes like organizing for themselves the importance of worker power the importance of unionizing the importance of anti-imperialist efforts to get the U.S. out of Central America this shit that goes back I mean really since Central American government's were founded you know and the economies have been structured ever since as a colonial export economies specializing in whatever particular resources or raw materials us or europe needs and i appreciated also the like the the part of unity is forward that i really appreciated was the explanation I think also like the book itself also just goes into all of this history about how like the majority of the railroad systems built in Central America were built with money that was borrowed from from Europe that the U.S. eventually took on and I think every day I just learn more and more about the extent to which the U.S. is so deeply intertwined and embedded in Salvadoran politics. So it's, the, it's like at the it's just the only response or way, way forward is just for the U.S. to get the fuck out yes. <laughs> of everything. Yes. Yeah. This is like really terrible because I went to college to major in political science and then like I refused to like retain anything that I learned in my economy class because I just thought it was all bullshit and that's like really backfired because now I'm like like barely starting to understand a lot of this but I was just like this whole idea of I think this was in Nicaragua yeah where um basically in exchange for the loans that the U.S. was giving Nicaragua they gave exclusive, like they insured the loans by giving the U.S. exclusive control over a river and lake that were like really instrumental for trade. Um, which is like, like you were saying, what they've done throughout all of Latin America and especially like the Panama Canal, um, just to be able to ensure like the U.S.'s um, success in the trade in trade and the economy and 
profit off of Latin America's resources. Right. It's either the U.S. or Europe. Is That's the story of Central America. It's like one of the two's resources or raw materials that are needed completely dictate the structure of the economy, right? So the book talks about kind of the the economic transition for Salvador that for a bit of time, like the colonial economy stayed despite independence. And then eventually in the 19th century, coffee plantations are what took over the economy. And it's, I think for, if people want to learn or think more about this, I would recommend Las Venas Abiertas de Latinoamerica by Eduardo Galeano. Because, and, you know, he doesn't focus on El Salvador a lot. It's kind of one of my critiques of his his texts, but he he paints a really great high-level picture of the extraction that has occurred from Europe and the U.S. Also very dense. In Latin America. It is, it, it is but... And that's why also some people say you should read it in Spanish because just some things are lost in translation with the English version. But, and I tried to do that and then I was like, I need to find the English <laughs> version to realize this for this to like actually happen. And then I never took up the Spanish version again. So oof, I'll put them on my long list of, I mean, long list of things to read. And I was, I was about to get Jade and be like, I mean, I really don't know if I'm going to get to that. <laughs> In your free time. (laughs) I will not say that. Yeah, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to put on the list and in earnest think that I'm going to actually do it. (laughs) I talked to you about this as well. I want to talk about the Maximiliano and Alex Martinez dictatorship. So just to kind of start off in general, um, can you do or would you agree that his dictatorship is an example of a Salvadorian, quote, zone of silence? yeah. Go ahead. Uh, oh, well, I was going to say, I don't know if you, you knew that was what that was referring to, but I like just unlocked a lit review where I talked with a Salvi PhD student of art history. And she was telling me about this artist, Cracky Rodriguez, that talks about these zones of silence, these things that Salvadorans just don't talk about, like the 1932 uprisings, like the Civil War. And so I, and how like, yes, there is this silence. And then at the same time, like these silences actually structure our lives. Um, So yeah, I wanted to ask if you thought about that dictatorship as being an example of that. Wait, is that the, who is that lit review with? Or what is that one called? Oh, the lit review was with Jasmine Magagna. And then, (gasps) yeah, wait, (laughs) you know Jasmine? Yeah, yeah, we went to undergrad. Oh, wait, did you connect me with her? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. I was like, wait, okay. <laughs> yes, Desmond. So funny because I just visited with her and we were talking about this too. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, and I think we've, we've talked about this too a little bit and I can't remember exactly which book Oh, probably in Roberto Lovato's Unforgetting. And mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, most of what I learned growing up was from my parents. 
who my dad is like, I feel very fortunate that he was very open and really talked a lot about like the Salvadoran civil war and like the history. But what about things like before him though? Like, cause Max Miliano was dictator, was the dictator from like the thirties to the forties. So your dad wasn't alive then. Do you know about that history? No, definitely not alive. Yeah, but like he still talked about him as like the worst dictator. And like, I remember having this, it wasn't like a book, but it was kind of like an article, a book of like, I don't know. It was kind of like a book, but it came out, I think. I don't know. We just had like a lot of literature in the house that talked about like history in El Salvador. And I just like remember specifically like my dad always talking about like whenever he talked about Maximiliano this one and it's probably because it's like one of the most popular beliefs that he had where he believed that he could get rid of small chicken pox or by smallpox smallpox yeah by changing the lights in like or having making people like put up a, a red light outside of their house i think um and he believed that that would oh my gosh so there have been like science deniers forever yeah yeah so it like this movement to like believe in science has actually been ongoing (laughs) yeah so anyways i think that's just like one of the things i always think about when when i think about what i knew about him growing up it's just him and the 14 families but i do agree that it's definitely not something that's talked about or like remembered and I know we've talked about this in conversation but for example with my grandma who's in El Salvador um yeah it's just like um this is it would it's just very difficult to you know I can't just like ask her I think it's just really complicated to like ask her what her life was like growing up or like if she remembers any of this history I don't think that she would want to talk about it me creating it by assuming that that's the zone of silence right there being created though right not you not you you as one individual no but it's like there's like all these historical processes I mean the government I mean they decapitated Feliciano's head so that no indigenous person would ever, you know, would like not feel comfortable talking about their participation in the movement, such that years later, when these university professors are in the area to write a history of this, most indigenous families told them, oh, no, we weren't involved in that. Or, uh, yeah, that was a Latino trick or what, you know, and it's like, like the government propaganda machine is very real. And I deeply, deeply appreciate the efforts of historians like the authors of Tries and Darkness and even like Inan, the author of this book, I appreciate because I love that your dad is super politically and historically educated and knows about this history because I did not learn about Maximiliano Nando Inan's Martinez. And for me, it is very much a zone of silence and that whole... Oh, wow uprising and genocide is is a zone of silence that actually like i have talked with my mom recently and she didn't she still does not know about it her first time hearing about it when i told her she's you know in her 60s yeah so it's the Mm -hmm. government campaign to spread misinformation and to keep 
our history is buried is very, very real and unfortunately very, very effective. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also similar to what you were saying about uh, communism um, or like how it's basically just became like a tool to uh, further genocide against the indigenous communities because the understanding of like what was even behind like what um, the workers, laborers were actually asking for is just completely erased and in turn in and turn into like, oh, this terrible threat that was like going to tear apart the country. Right. Which is communism. Yeah, it was really it was kind of which we continue to be afraid of today. Right. I'm not not advocating for communism, but right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely true that the stigma related to communism extends into today and and it the you know folks in that 32 uprising were asking for like an 8 hour work day <laughs> for example and so it's it kind of reminded me of the fact that the work of labor rights isn't done and like we need a new labor movement to get the next win which can be like the four-day work week or that's kind of like the kind of a big one I see but something similar I think just needs to happen because we just we can't keep the same economic structures that we had in the 19th century it's just not going to work and we figured out how to separate church and state and I just think there's a lot more wins that we can get to for workers' rights. And, you know, I think, especially in Salvador, like the indigenous call for land back is so critical and so pressing and kind of like just the most important thing because as you say, there are like the 14 families and that have controlled the land for such a long period of time and really controlled the land for the benefit and purposes of whatever the U.S. and Europe needs. And I, yeah, I wanted to ask if you could give background into how land distribution became so concentrated in such a small group, you know, as you say, the 14 families in the Salvador. Yeah, and I don't have super in-depth analysis but I don't know if it really was that in-depth like my understanding is just that basically um like a small group of people tricked um you know folks who had been living on the land indigenous folks to basically well basically like stole their land from them and then made a deal with them that they could have like a small piece of land if they agreed to work on the land or kept all the land and then told you know the people that they could have a job if they worked on the land for them right and that's like that's pretty similar to what happened I think like post-civil war with emancipation of black folks is that like what occurred was just like something kind of akin to indentured servitude where 
people live on the land and work the land in an effort to pay back the landlord, but the landlord then has a lot of leeway in, you know, in saying what rent is or how much people have to pay back. And supported by the government. Right. One thing about the the 14 families, yep, which I probably read before, but um just kind of like a light one off this time. Um so they they're also referred to the 14 families because there's 14 departments or states in El Salvador. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there's actually 14 families. No, I think there are not. It's like not an exact number. And and so like the the fact that you point to is true that there's 14 departments. And so people have talked about the 14 families, but the, the number is not quite 14, but it's a small enough number where that comparison is okay to make. I think it's like elucidating how concentrated land distribution is where 14 families in the whole country control all, most of the land. Right. I just looked up, <laughs> I just looked it up on Wikipedia too. And um, now oh, I've heard this guy before, this like Tim person, um, Tim's blog or something like that. But now it says uh, the 14 families have turned into eight companies that control Salvador. Wow. What are the companies? Oh, eight business groups are Grupo Cuscatlan, wow. Ban Agricola, Banco Salvadoreño, Banco de Comercio, Grupo Agrizal, Agrizal Grupo Poma, Grupo de Sola, and Grupo Hill. <laughs> I've heard of a couple of those. Well, if any listener knows, let me know so we can let everyone else know. (laughs) Right. And so those are the predominant landowners in the country? Not, yeah. I mean, I think landowners controlling capital in the country. Yeah. According to Wikipedia. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So a little asterisk there. (laughs) Although... I think it's kind of elitist to talk about how Wikipedia doesn't have good information because it's like collectively sourced. Mm-hmm. So actually, like, it is accurate. Do you know what I mean? Like, what's the difference between collectively sourced and peer reviewed? If you think about it, besides institutional backing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's real. <laughs> so one of the things that Nina Diaz was incorrect about is she made a statement about Honduras where she said there that in that country there's no indigenous communities of importance and I just wanted to correct the record because that's really weird (laughs) wait where where was it it was her foreword or what did she say she said there there was no indigenous communities there of importance (gasps) I missed that oh no (laughs) yes which I think we were talking about, oh, was that familiar problematic towards indigenous Salvadoran communities? I'm going to go with yes. Yeah. <laughs> and because, you know, there's the Mesquito people who had their border cut in half. It's pretty similar to Tohonorum, actually, uh, Tohonorum people between Honduras and Nicaragua that were a huge part of like the Sandinista movement because they also had their own reckoning with the fact that they had not incorporated indigenous people into their vision or their plan and they were very arrogant in approaching them. That was the whole thing that they had to work through. And so 
I just know for a fact that this statement is just so incorrect because there are also Garifunas who were in Honduras and who were on the land prior to independence from Spain. And I think the, it was just so, so wrong. And, and maybe like the like beginning markers uh, for problematic politics that we see today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, we like very briefly touched on this, but I wanted to ask, how were you are prior to reading this about the centrality of the U.S. in the creation of railways and in the creation of banana exports in the San Salvador slash larger Central America? Just to how aware you were of it before this, because I know um, I was aware of like the banana exports, because like, that's why people talk about, quote unquote, banana republics <laughs> is... <gasps> I didn't know oh, that. No. Yes, bitch. That's why it's so offensive to us. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why it's like, it's like so funny. It's like, oh, really? Really? You don't want the U.S. to become a banana republic? Is that because you so intimately know <sighs> the horrors of what happens when you do that? <laughs> but in anyway. Wow. <laughs> that is mm-hmm. good to know. The book talked about Miner Cooper Keith, who owned the Costa Rica Railroad Company. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't, I mean, I definitely hadn't read anything that was as in-depth. And I still feel like this was kind of like an overview, but I I hadn't read anything that talked about the creation of the railways. Yeah. um, Like this before. So I wasn't, I wasn't very aware other than like, I think the the primary focus is always or usually on like the Panama Canal because that just last uh, U.S. occupation there lasted so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I think it's important for me to correct the record because I had a professor on who talked about or who tried to frame like United Fruit Company as having a positive contribution in the in Panama and like in the like the larger Central American area because of quote unquote job creation. <laughs> and so really, really need to just correct the record now and should have been more on top of it really when I was interviewing her because I knew that that wasn't the case. But sometimes I I am uncomfortable with confrontation and I don't know how to handle it in the moment. And that's one of the things that I'm working on getting better at. And no worries, listeners. Now, if someone were to say that, I'd be like, <laughs> stop it. <laughs> so, yeah. So, just wanted to clarify that for folks. And I'm so happy that I get to correct the record now. <laughs> one thing, you know, one thing actually I noted here reading about the railroad expansion and how this really like was the center of the monopoly or being able to monopolize the railways monopolize trade it just made me think of reading a history of violence no yes history of violence where <laughs> we're talking about um mm-hmm. like the setas monopolizing the migrant routes and yeah just kind of like the parallels between that and like I mean obviously I'm sure narcos um like drug cartels learned about monopolies through many different ways but it was just kind of like oh like this is almost a very similar system 
obviously trading different things, but same idea. Right. And for that reason, I wanted to ask you for your opinion about why Lidia Diaz, despite her contemporary political failings, ultimately had the vision to start Marti's biography with a history of 19th and 20th century U.S. and European imperialism across Latin America. Well, I think it lays the groundwork. I mean, the like the title of the book is mm-hmm. Rebellion backyard. Yeah, mm-hmm. in the backyard. And I mean, yeah, I think it is just a really good overview of the exploitation um, and and the control control yeah and like also just using latin america as kind of like a test is it like a testing ground or going through trial and error to see like what what works best to i don't know i'm not doing a good job of articulating this but i think i just like think about it like the way like the way that the U.S. intervenes to decide who they want to be in power to like control different ground. parts of the economy yeah. Yeah. Um, is just like they just yeah it's just so disgusting how like how much influence they have and um, just like how like they are able to just say, oh, no, we don't like this president. I mean, even to this day, we're going to back this president and to support declaring these other elections as like fraudulent. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the level of U.S. involvement like, can't ever be overstated. I don't think people understand like the U.S. controlled these countries' customs. Like, Oh, when you travel into the backyard that you've inherited because of your U.S. citizenship, do, are you aware of the processes that govern your entry and exit from the country or were largely controlled by the U.S. until very recently ago? And this control exists mm-hmm. now and it has ever since mm-hmm. the Central American countries were founded. We're talking about people as far back in the U.S. as Taft intervening in Nicaragua, having a physical presence in Nicaragua with Marines and a Navy base at the Gulf of Fonseca. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, even like, and the introduction talked about this, just intervention in Cuba, where, I mean, I know that I'm not yes. going to like, say enough about this and I don't know enough about it but it's just how ironic it is that the U.S. has this trade embargo with Cuba but at the same time we still maintain presence in Cuba with Guantanamo Bay and I also just learned that right no sorry the U.S. pays Cuba like four thousand dollars a year as a lease to have Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, which is like, what? Right. I mean, there's, yeah, anybody living in a city right now, that's like four months of your rent um, in whatever apartment you're at um, yeah. for them to like rent out this prison space in Guantanamo Bay and carry out horrific human rights abuses, which nobody should be on board with. Least, you know. Yeah. It's just, it's just such a absurd relationship that 
yeah, we just like complain, uh, claim to be like so against Cuba and like their political system and like everything they do. But at the same time, like, I don't know, have this game going on. I think the U.S. hates Cuba because of what it inspires in the rest of Latin America. And I think about it with Martí's story him, himself uh, and his father's story shows that this is very true because Martí talked about how his father, Pedro, was hugely influential in his life and because he was a big reader. And Pedro changed his name to Martí after the Cuban revolutionary poet, Jose mm-hmm. Martí, because their last name was Martí with an R at the end. It's unfortunate that, as we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. his father eventually repudiated him. But I wanted to ask, what did you make of, of Farabundo Martí's father changing his name to Martí? And how do you think that affected him? Yeah, that was really interesting. I did not know about, did not know that about Farabundo Martí's name. Um, and I don't know if it like, I don't know if the book really talked about how the name change affected Farabundo Martí, but definitely, I mean, I think like there was a, this book definitely focused on like his earlier life, how he was very inspired by uh, literature like Jose Martí's um, literature and other Latin American revolutionaries and I mean I think that his his father was also like there was um a part in the book where he like gathered the kids around to like read them I can't remember what it was that he was reading them but he his father also like there was something in the book about his father trying to memorize like every um writing of Jose Martí to be able to like recite it I think the thing for me that was sad is that maybe I don't know I saw his dad as maybe supporting these things in theory and then being a person who when it really comes down to it when the rubber hits the road just being like whoa, whoa I mean it wasn't that serious about it mm-hmm. that's sad. <laughs> yeah sorry that's not funny well you're laughing because you're like you know a lot of people like that and you know you might work with a lot of people like that and it's it's something like I think we can appreciate Farah Martí a lot more because of the fact that he he was able to see past the bullshit and was like, well, I do agree with these ideas. And so I do want to fully pledge my life and my body for this cause. Right. I mentioned this earlier about how there was a point between 1824 and 1839 that there was La República Federal de Centroamérica. And I wanted to ask, what do you think of Francisco Manasan's suggestions of a unified Central America? Mm, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> um, I don't remember his exact suggestions, but I think about like during the civil wars, um, I feel like that context on 34 about like what that would look like, but definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it would benefit just the fact that I think as this book talks about and like as Farabundo Mati recognized and also organized around like the transnational solidarity was just that like a lot of these countries have faced the same challenges Central America and Latin America due to like similar 
controlled by similar um, like tactics of control and exploitation by the U.S. and Europe. And, and I mean, I think that's kind of what like Hugo Chavez was trying to do in Venezuela too, right? Like unifying South America because ultimately, you know, all of these resources that are being extracted from these countries are resources that Central America, Latin America could be using to support support their own people um and i mean i think that that's how the u.s has continued to be so successful by keeping like central america divided like for example with like the salvadoran civil war um they were able to make like agreements with like costa rica to hold weapons for in the I think that was the Iran Contra scandal where they were hiding weapons in Costa Rica for the military so but I mean that's always a strategy right like divide and conquer yeah I don't think they gave any specifics about like oh you know what would the federal government have power over what would state governments have power over but I guess I'm just recognizing how many times Central America being unified has been in the benefit of Central America. And I'm wondering if there's something to that. So I I do think that there would be benefits in Central America being unified, for sure. Yeah, I think so. I think that's why he's such a threatening figure for like U.S. imperialist policymakers and politicians. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... It's important to recognize also how the U.S. exports its model of of oppression. (laughs) So from reading this book, I learned that Carlos Melendez was the first president who created a Salvador National Guard, for example. Like, I don't know if you knew that before. Yeah, so I was going to say... Farabundo Martí like clearly had a very worker-oriented politic. Like he founded PCS, the Communist Party of El Salvador, fighting against unjust contract work, unjust firings, and poor wages, an eight-hour workday. I mentioned the four-day work week. What are the next worker wins that we need to fight for? Yeah. Hmm. I have a hard time answering this because I feel like we so I am part of a union, which I feel like has really good benefits. Woo-hoo. Right. That is so amazing and something that is so far from where Arizona is. And Arizona needs to implement that. I mean, yeah. yes. <laughs> and I love and I love the idea of sabbaticals too, because it's like Yes, like regardless of whether or not you have a child or you're doing some like life altering thing, you need a break. So I wanted to ask if prior to reading this book, you were aware of Anastasio Aquino and the rebellion that he led. He organized indigenous people and campesinos under the slogan La Tierra es para quien la trabaja. And the author talked about this on pages 38 to 39. Kind of like what we said earlier 
I would be interested to learn more about Farabunda Marti's racial identity. And also, I don't think this book, I don't think this would be talked about in this book, but I, I definitely do want to learn more about the history of the use of deportation and exile in Latin America and Central America in particular. And I think that, yeah, I wonder, I don't know, I feel like I would want to read more of like what Farabundo Martí actually wrote himself because this book was definitely like looking in. Me either. And that phrase to me I've heard so many times and I, I was like, wow, this is a Salvadoran person that was working under the slogan and I had absolutely no idea. And I also wanted to ask, what were the tensions between the student communist leaders like Farabundo Martí and then, for example, like indigenous leaders like Jose Feliciano Ama? What would you have wanted to see more of or learn more about from this book? In the books that we've read, I think we still haven't heard about women guerrillas in general and in throughout this entire moment. And I think it's definitely very possible that there's just not very much written about them. Right. But right. Right. Which is not to say they didn't do a lot. It's just that they haven't right. been written about. <laughs> right. So it was it was troubling to read this book and think about the origins of what El Chipote was in Sandino, where Farabudo Martí stayed at, because that is now a site of torture for so many Nicaraguans that I know that are fleeing the country. And we we kind of talked about this a little bit. But I guess we haven't gotten deep into it. Yeah. I was very haunted by reading about El Chipote and how Pedro Marti stayed there and how it was like at one point a beacon of leftist activity because the Nicaraguans that I've spoken with in the past few years have talked about how that's like a torture site now. And like the Sandinistas and, and FMLN kind of have followed a similar trajectory of yeah. being radical, rebellious groups tied to El Pueblo and then kind of disintegrating into political parties that are corrupt in very similar ways to other political parties that we're more aware of. And it it, it was just troubling to see. And you reminded me of the importance of self-awareness, particularly in this nonprofit industrial complex where a lot of lawyers in particular convince themselves that just because they're public interest lawyers, they're like good. They don't need to introspect or think about where their loyalties and allegiances lie. No, you do need to think about that <laughs> because there are countless movements that have started off with the best of intentions and the, the best of politics mm-hmm. or, and have ended up just replicating the acts of the oppressor. Why do you think that these left-wing insurgent groups turned into the oppressors that they fought ultimately? I feel like my thoughts are going to be oversimplified, but I I think that like part of it is um like kind of what you said not being as inclusive to start out with. Um to the populations that 
they're fighting with. I also think, I guess, just like the evolution of like the FMLN today. I mean, it's definitely it's definitely a different time from when Fadabul Nawati was alive. They're not in the middle of like, quote unquote, a civil war anymore. Right. Um, so I think just like different times and like different different goals and access to power really can change a person um and so like i think for example like i've just heard folks from el salvador talk about like how all of the political parties are corrupt and, and like money hungry and i think like i I can definitely see how that could happen to Mm -hmm. FMLN once they were established as a political party. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think that as you say power corrupts and I think people forget their values along the way and I just think it's unfortunate that people who align themselves with Farwadamarti who really was about labor organizing as a means to end the (laughs) wage system somebody who believed in direct action and solidarity you know, is now part of a corrupt political system that feels the need to thank the U.S. or like congratulate, quote unquote, the U.S. on the 4th of July. It's just, it's so divorced from who he was and what he stood for. He he wrote, Cuando la historia no se puede escribir con la pluma, se debe escribir con el rifle. What do you, like, what, what does that mean to you? I think that just like demonstrates his commitment to to El Salvador to the Salvadoran people and just commitment to anti-imperialism in any way possible mm-hmm. which I think he really by any means necessary yeah like I think he really did demonstrate that throughout his life I mean, I think, yeah, we did. <laughs> we kind of talked about this before, and I related to exclusion of uh, non-Spanish-speaking communities, and because I do, I prefer not to use the word Hispanic, um, because, like, you know, I've I've just viewed it as a term that refers to folks who speak Spanish, and like without even thinking about all the different indigenous languages and dialects I automatically just think about like Brazil who doesn't speak Spanish um but definitely think that it's much more exclusionary I still use the word I still identify as Latina and use Latinx a lot of time because I still haven't found like a word that I feel more comfortable using, but, or 
that I feel like I can identify with. So I don't know. I think it's complicated, but I definitely, I definitely think that Hispanic by itself is not representative. Right. And so for all the reasons you said, that's just why I wanted to bring it up because I still think it's an accurate depiction of the people he was trying to organize if he was trying to organize everybody in Latin America. And so I had to bring it up and really appreciate you kind of clearly elucidating for people why that moniker is not quite accurate. So thank you so much for being on the podcast and talking about this for two hours. Like, wow. (laughs) There was a lot. There was, and I thank you for being patient and taking us through it. And so as the last, very last outgoing question, I wanted to ask, what do you recommend to the Gatrimbonas to watch, listen to, or just get caught up with to stay in the know, to stay at Gatrimbona? So... <laughs> I started my partner recently organized like a walking challenge and uh, or like it's walking jogging running doing that I was catching up on lit reviews <laughs> so I would definitely recommend uh catching up if you haven't already wow did y'all hear that I didn't say <laughs> catch up on the lit reviews she said become a patron and catch up okay <laughs> <laughs> and I would oh I just finished the last season of Kim's Convenience and on Netflix, Canadian show about a Korean family, Korean Canadian family that owns a convenience store. And I loved it. I think it's so hilarious. And was disappointed to see that a lot of that based on what actors that was said speaking out, that the production was very white and the ridership was very white. And so the actors had to fight back against a lot of really stereotypical storylines and character development. And I just really appreciate all of the API actors that did that because the fifth season of King's Convenience is still as good as all the others. And I know that's because of the pushback that they got from the actors. So recommend watching it. And thank you so much, Yesenia, for coming on to the podcast. You are a joy, a gem, a treasure. And How are you? <laughs> you should know that. Oh my God, I love you. And you should know that so many people who comment on the podcast specifically talk about our episodes that we've recorded. So. I got you bonus. Love you too. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> well, I love being a part of this and as always love yes. learning about more about ourselves. Um, yeah, so just really appreciate this space. Thank you. I appreciate you and bye everyone.